This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. You may have heard of John Fain. He used to have quite a presence on another radio station. His book is part biography, part Aboriginal awareness, part strongman and completely coincidental. His book is... Apollo and Thelma. Welcome, John. Thanks very much, Jane. Lovely to be here. Well, in 1982, as a young lawyer, you were given a disputed estate file. Now, the dispute. The will was illegally changed. Jewelry was to go to a missing person. Others were claiming to be the rightful beneficiaries. And a large amount of cash had been dug up by a dog, although Thelma had drawn an age pension and never paid tax. So, John, where did Thelma die? Thelma Hawkes, it was the estate of T.C. Hawkes, Thelma Cecilia Hawkes, and she was the publican of a pub in the middle of the Northern Territory at a place called Top Springs, which is the intersection of two red dirt roads, two and a half hours west of Catherine, towards the West Australian border. It's the nearest pub to the Garingi walk-off at Wave Hill at a place now called Kalkaringi, which was the old Vesti station, cattle station. I'm going back to Wave Hill because this book, as I say, starts off with the will, but it follows your career path for 40 years and there's so many different coincidences. Wave Hill, if you don't know it, you'll know it from the song by Paul Kelly and Kev Carmody, From Little Things, Big Things Grow. I'm glad you sang it because my, my version's not nearly as tuneful. <laughs> and, and also that iconic photo. Oh. Everyone will instantly recognise of Gough Whitlam pouring sand into the hands yeah of Vincent Lingiari, a, 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 a cattleman, a stockman from, from the Garinji tribe. And that's regarded as the birth of land rights, although, as I explain in the book, there's a bit more to it than that. And Frank Hardy, your life seems to have coincidentally matched things that he did. Well, I met him through the ABC. In fact, he was a regular at 3CR. He used to regularly come in here back in the day. And Frank Hardy came into my life because I was doing, at the ABC, I was doing an oral history series of old lawyers. So before I did the morning talkback show, which I did for 23 years, can't believe I'm saying that, it just seems like so long, I was originally hired, I'd been at Fitzroy Legal Service, and I left the Fitzroy Legal Service in 1987. I didn't have a job to go to, but I knew I had to get out. And I started doing some freelance work for people at the ABC on The Law Report on Radio National. And then I got the job as the producer-presenter of The Law Report. And one of the things I did was track down the oldest lawyers I could find anywhere in Australia to get their stories, oral history inspired by Tim Bowden and his oral history stuff. And one of the people I interviewed was the legendary old judge, John Stark, Sir John Stark, who was, amongst other things, the judge who sentenced Ronald Ryan to the gallows, which yeah. is explained in a, an interview I did with him in a book called Taken on Oath where he, he says he was set up by Henry Bolte to be the judge to do that. And along with the other stories he tells, he tells the story of being Frank Hardy's lawyer in the Power That Glory trial. And then from there I get to meet Hardy, because Hardy hears the interview. And he writes to me at the ABC and says, I want to hear what else Stark said about me. And I, I end up sitting, as we are now, almost knee to knee in a little ABC recording booth, lacing up reel-to-reel tapes so that Frank Hardy could hear what John Stark said about the trial that had happened <laughs> decades before. And then Hardy said, can I meet Stark? Will you introduce me? And I took Hardy down to meet Stark. And I started working on things with Hardy. He wanted to know why he'd been prosecuted for criminal defamation. And he believed there was a, a conspiracy between the police and the Catholic mafia 
in particular, Cardinal Knox, to try and, and prosecute him to, to stop communist agitators criticising the Catholic Church. Now, you're telling too much about the book. Uh, you're, you're telling, you're telling, and that's just one aspect of the oh, book. It's, there's, there's five different but stories in this, this book, there at least. Are, but yeah. I want to go back to Wave Hill, and yep. I want you to read from page 89. Sure, but just to give the context, so Hardy, after the, the Power That Glory issue, Hardy had gone bush to try and retrieve his capacity to write. And he, through circuitous means, which I explain in the book, he, he ends up at Wave Hill. Mm. He's a writer who can't write, who meets up with some people with a story they can't tell. And Hardy becomes the unofficial publicist for the Garingi at Wave Hill. And then going back to Sir John Stark and Frank Hardy being their publicist, Wave Hill and all the rest of it, Hardy suddenly dies and I become the MC at his funeral with Gough Whitlam crying on my shoulder oh, as he recounts to the packed Collingwood Town Hall how it was Hardy and the Garingi strike and his book The Unlucky Australians that opened his eyes to Indigenous disadvantage which led to land rights. And it's an extraordinary tale and I, I learned it as I researched the book. I kind of knew snippets of it but the, the book puts it all into perspective and then I reveal my personal motivation, mm. my family motivation for wanting this story told. So you want me to read from page 89? The original inhabitants we're talking about of Top Springs in the, in the Northern Territory, the First Nations people, the custodians of the world's oldest surviving culture, the survivors of the frontier wars were regarded here at Top Springs as a nuisance, a source of revenue, a pathetic but lucrative customer base for grog, and that was all. Mm. At that stage of my life, I'd barely even met an Aboriginal person. There was only one Indigenous student at Monash Law School, Pat Dodson. <laughs> Can you believe yeah. it? But he'd dropped out after only one year. I'd had no other connection to Aboriginal Australia. So it's your awareness and your growing concern about um, our colonial history and the trauma that it's brought to Aboriginal inhabitants. But... We've got to go back to Thelma and the will. You finally organised a settlement and a quote from your book. I did a technically good job, undercharged them and more than earned my fees, squeezed every one of the claimants trying to get any of Thelma's money and maximised the payout for her three nephews. Now I want you to turn to page 45, please, John. Page, page 45, yep. And? Mid-morning on Tuesday the 30th of March 1982. I was dispatched to reception to usher new clients into Peter, my boss's office. Lynn, the receptionist, nodded towards a group of four perched nervously on the waiting room chairs, made up of three casually dressed teenagers and who I correctly assumed to be their father. I tried hard to appear confident, announced myself and was greeted with a finger-crushing handshake by Paul Alexander McPherson Anderson, a short but square-rigged man in a dapper jacket an old-fashioned time. So this is really the essence of the book. Who was Paul Anderson? He was the mighty Apollo, his stage name. He was the man who survived being stood on by an elephant in a circus trick, pulled trams down the street with a toggle attached to his teeth and had the world record for the number of cars driven over his body while he lay on a bed of nails. <laughs> he was superhuman. He had a threshold for pain, the likes of which none of us can understand. And he became my favourite client. 
we learn more about him. We learn how his first marriage with Nola, he survived being shot by her and that led to a, a separation. He needed a new curvaceous showstopper and found Rondell, the, the beach girl beauty and weightlifter. He sort of did a little bit of a lie about his age when he met her. She was 26. He said he was 40, but he was really 52. Yes, and he could get away with it because his physique was extraordinary and no one really minded that much. But, of course, later on in their lives, that gap in age became crucial because not long after, with three children aged five, seven and nine, Rhonda did a runner. She dropped the boys at school one day, said, be good to each other and look after your father, and vanished. On the same day, the martial arts instructor in Apollo's gym didn't come to work. And it turned out they debunked together. And the kids, they were then, now they're middle-aged men, they've never forgiven her. They were put into institutional care. Their father couldn't look after them. He had a nervous breakdown. The eldest one, Paul, He won't even say her name and he won't Mm. call her mother. He says, she was no mother to me. She was just an incubator. An incubator. Have you ever heard anyone describe their mother as an incubator? I I just, you know, that that It takes your breath away. The youngest Mm. one, Bruce, says, Rhonda the bitch, she ruined my life. I hope she rots in hell. And I said, Bruce, okay, but what do you want me to put in the book? Rhonda the bitch, Mm. she ruined my life. I hope she rots in hell. Did you get that down? Did you get it right? And I, it has to be said that, and this gives me no joy at all, all three now middle-aged men, all three sons, cooperated in the telling of this story, but they're not happy with it. Mm. They're not happy with how I've told it. And they think I've been too harsh on their aunt, who was a racist redneck publican in the middle of the outback, and they think I've been too unfair to their father, because I describe him, for instance, as vain, and I thought he was, but they, they have an idealised version of their dad, which I don't share, so... Um, they they don't endorse the book, which which I'm really sorry about. So, this Paul Anderson, the mighty Apollo, when you met him, he had a shoebox of his writings. He wanted you to find a publisher, but you're really telling his story. The thing about Apollo and Thelma, brother and sister, grew up in Depression era Clifton Hill and Collingwood. He sought fame, and she sought fortune. She found fortune, but was a pretty unhappy person by all accounts. And she was planning to leave the Territory and come down to Melbourne with her money, and there was lots of it, Mm. and set up house with Apollo. She never got to. She died suddenly of an asthma attack, and that leads to the story about the dog and the cop and the frog, which I'll leave for people (laughs) to read in the book. Um, Apollo, on the other hand, he sought fame, and he's immortalised. He's immortalised with a, a, a lane, a street named after him, and a building that still bears his mark, a cafe, apartments, the Mighty Apollo Apartments, and now a book. And he would be chuffed. I'm absolutely sure, although his sons go, oh, he wouldn't be happy with how you've described him, but I'm sure I can. he would be wrapped. Delighted. And I'm introducing him to an entire new generation of people, this extraordinary Melbourne figure who was almost superhuman and did things that, Quite frankly, even in all the years since, nobody else could do can do these things. Uh, if you called them stunts, and I oh. did once, he would snap at you. These aren't stunts, John. These are genuine feats of strength. I became very fond of him. He was enigmatic and charismatic. And you, 
sought him out in many times to just talk to him or find out what he was doing or the coincidences in your life led you back to him. This is a quote from the book. You laugh at the incongruity of life and the twists and turns that catch us by surprise. There were things like Thelma's husband, Sid, who had the boat that was supplied help through the Indonesian Timorese conflict. Oh, he took Kerry Packer yeah. and Gerald Stone and the 60 Minutes crew <laughs> across from Darwin to Dili when there was a complete ban on anybody going to see what yeah. the Indonesians were doing in the, Indonesi- in the invasion of Timor. And I, I mean, I met Sid a couple of times and recorded. This is way back in the 1990s. I recorded interviews with him on little cassettes, which I've still got. And I thought, what an incredible life. And, you know, he could be a book on his own. And, you know, I'm, I'm, the territory is, wherever you go, the territory is full of characters. And I fell in love with the territory. I go back there all the time. Our oldest son, Nigel, lives there now in Darwin. And uh, we go back to Arnhem Land. He lived in Ramanginning and Gambalanya and Palarumpi on the Tiwi Islands. And yeah, we, I love the place. And everyone you meet, everyone's got a story. You know, they say there's, do you know the three M's of territory life? The, the people who go to the territory, the three M's. Mercenaries, missionaries and misfits. <laughs> Which I think is a bit unfair, but it characterises, you know, I mean, people go there, they love the lifestyle. You know, the hunt and shoot and fish and, and the drinking. Oh, and right. that's a big part of this book too. Uh, absolutely. And, yes, the problems it, it brings. Although Thelma was a teetotaler, complete teetotaler. You know, here because she, was she the... saw what was on the other side of the bar. And so there's two types of publicans in the Territory. There's those that are absolute, complete alcoholics. And there's plenty of those. And books have been written about some of them and other tales are told. And then there's those that see the other side of the bar and go, I'm never going to be like that. Mm. And she was more interested in money, as everybody says, including her ex-husband, who says that's what ended their, their marriage. She was obsessed with oh, money. She had a lot of it too. So back to the coincidences. The lawyer who wrote Thelma's Will and your own writing at Abbotsford Convent. I looked around, where could I get a room where I could stick a computer and a chair and a desk and get away from everything else and turn off any distractions and I just wrote and I researched and I rang people and I checked archives and did all the things I needed to do. I read about 40 books which are listed in the back of the book as sources in order to make sure that first of all I knew what I was talking about and also to extend what I already knew and I came up with a manuscript, shopped it around, found a publisher and they said your manuscript's a good start but there's all sorts of problems with it and by the time I got to the fourth draft Mm. we had a book. And the book is Apollo and Thelma. He was constantly seeking fame as the world's strongest man and his sister owned a pub in remote Northern Territory. John Fain writes about his links to them through his own legal and media background and what it has taught him about Australia's colonial history. Thank you, John. Absolute pleasure. And now it's David's turn. Family, responsibility gender and even the role of poetry and art in our lives are explored in Bad Art Mother by Edwina Preston. So Edwina, welcome to 3CR. Hello David, thank you for having me. Now Vita Gray is a poet in Melbourne in Mm -hmm. the 50s and 60s and even though I was around at that time it's a bit hard to recall. Life was different then. I deliberately made this book end just before I was born in terms of the first part of it 
And I guess I was sort of born at around a similar time to um, Jermaine Greer's The Female Eunuch being published. So that was a kind of a choice that I made just because it was convenient and meaningful for me, but also because the period between 1970 and 1975, especially in Australia with Whitlam, et cetera, was a period of immense change for women, legislative change, um, changes to divorce laws. It was a time of massive, massive and very, very fast change. So I sort of set Vita as set her up in the proto-feminist decade of the 60s where you know, there were books like Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique had been published and um, The Second Sex, which I think was published in 1949, were there, but they hadn't taken mainstream, you know, activist wing. So she just missed the surge of, of change and activism. I guess I also, I was, I was writing a thesis about correspondence as a female-centric mode of creative writing essentially, because it's a sort of writing that allows you to be interrupted, tend to other things, come back, spill your thoughts onto the page. It's provisional. It's not a masterwork. And in doing so, I was reading the the correspondence of Gwen Harwood. And of course, she was sort of came to prominence in the 60s. So that was where that decade, I guess, got some, some colour or influence. Otherwise, of course, you know, I wasn't there myself. I can remember Malvern Star Bikes, which you refer to, and uh, the meat and two veg type mentality. But Vida is a poet. And so the difficulty in having her voice heard, but she's also an anxious character in some ways. I knew mother would plan to wear her blue frilly expensive dress but would change her mind at the last minute, possibly ripping it slightly when she tore it off. She'd leave it inside out on her bed like children do. She'd put on a secretary's skirt instead of a brown twin set and a pair of shoes that were too high and too tight. Then she'd look at herself in the mirror and see that she was plain and ugly and frumpish. And she'd pull off the twin set and wriggle out of the skirt and look for something else, something elusive, something her wardrobe didn't contain. She can't necessarily pin herself down, let alone be pinned down. Well, um, yeah, she, she is a challenging character. And I wanted, I mean, that sort of scene, I think, represents a lot of women when they're getting dressed to go out and how they feel about themselves in their clothes. And I deliberately twined the Cinderella narrative into that as well, because that sort of, you know, we, we get brought up on that story of, you know, the clothes making us, making us a princess, etc. But I didn't want her to be a character that is not flawed. I wanted her to be flawed, just like male artist artists can be flawed characters. I wanted her to be confused and, and badly behaved and, and all of those things. And she is, but she's not wrong necessarily at any point. Is it wrong to, you know, to bring a child up in a way that doesn't tick all the boxes of respectability? Well, this is where your book strikes a note because her son, Owen, who is the main narrator of this story, is lent out to Mr and Mrs Parrish who become his guardian. Mm -hmm. So Vida is sort of outsourcing her parental responsibility. 
Yeah, this lending out, on the one hand, I was inspired by the story of Sweeney Reed that came to me. But of course, you, you have a premise for an idea and it changes as you write it. Sweeney Reed was the son of Joy Hester and Albert Tucker, and they essentially gave him to um, the Reeds, John and Sunday Reed, who ran Heidi because they were childless. So that's, that's where that began, because I was sort of interested in that, what that meant and doing that. But then it kind of expanded into an idea of, well, you know, I have children to two different fathers and have these extended families. And then in effect, you know, they get a double whammy of parents because it's, it's sort of more influences, more role models, not the tight nuclear family where you have one model that has to fit. And I think that's a good thing. Well, you've got the social model of what we expect, mum, dad, you know, 2.5 children, but you counterpoint what Vita has done and we can pass judgment on Vita perhaps for lending Owen out. Mm. Owen's father has been adopted. When he was 19, he became a chef for an Italian family and he was made part of their family. So it's not that unusual. No, and he also was brought up by a grandmother. So that was another thing that was about sort of destabilising those notions of the, of the nuclear family and, and are they necessary? There's one scene in the book where Owen has um, a meal with family friends who have a respectable traditional family scenario and he finds it extremely strange and it's, it's, um, it's almost like a, a test that he has to go through. So those sort of things came up and came out of it, but they, you know, a lot of stuff kind of happens subconsciously when you write a book. You're kind of playing with ideas. You don't really know what you're doing until you kind of stand back and talk to someone like you about it and you say, ah, yeah, that's what's happening there and and things fall into place. But women face these pressures in society (laughs) of conforming to the perceived roles of the day, but the men in the novel are portrayed sympathetically, which is interesting. We have Vita's husband, who is successful, a restaurateur, and is actually helping out the Salvation Army. And even Mr Parrish, who becomes one of Owen's guardians, who's having an affair, is also portrayed sympathetically. Well, the Mr Parrish character starts as a kind of a Uh, an enabling character for their change in circumstance and he's good to her husband but he's he doesn't go out of his way to support or help her and ultimately he exposes her but it's the exposure is more to do with his own things that are going on in his own life than an actual malicious act. He's pathetic when his wife leaves he doesn't know what to do with himself. You also raise an interesting point about poetry given that Leader as a poet, the very nature of poetry is illustrated. Leader is writing to her sister, Tilda, not getting replies, and mm-hmm. her letters become incredibly poetic as an expression of her anxiety. So I will write to you in a school, neither script nor screed, a school I imagine as long and ongoing and unbroken, more like a cotton reel than a scroll, an endless unwinding of something, very, very easy to break. I can unravel in a spool. The process is endless. It reads like, well, you've printed it like a poem. It reads like a poem. Well, it's certainly, you know, I guess it's sort of, a, you know, a loose, open-formed poem. 
And, you know, the final poem, the sonnet in the book is a closed form, taught, you know, traditional um, poem. But um, I kind of wanted her to find something that was formless and yet it's crafted because as someone who writes poetry, you can't help being attuned to, you know, the connections between words, their sounds, the crafting, the meter, the scanning. And, but it's, <laughs> it was essentially about her finding a place between forms the prose realities of letter writing and the and the strictures of writing something where you encapsulate an idea in an essential form as you do in a poem. The interesting thing is you've taken as a foundation for this story a conceit which is based on what Gwen Harwood did, the Australian poet, where she put forward a hoax poem that was published because she couldn't get published. And you've incorporated that into the novel. And this is what Vida actually does herself. But the reaction is very damning. And I guess this is where I thought, number one, I thought that Gwen Harwood story was just too fantastic to be forgotten in the mists of time. I had to do something with it. But, yeah, it kind of occurred to me that Gwen Harwood had an interesting temperament and the way she sort of dealt with and processed literary rejection was mischievously, playfully, like she felt it quite deeply and it stung. But she was a differently temperamented woman. She was, And I sort of thought, how would this play out for someone who doesn't have her solidity, someone who is erratic, someone who is not centred the way she, she was? But interestingly enough, it speaks also to the reaction of those who can't accept being mocked. So the powers that be in the day basically criticised Gwen Harwood and Vida in the story, uh, yeah. even though today we'd look at it as basically a, a playful and fun, but they were condemned yeah. for it. Well, I guess, you know, the, the simple thing of, you know, language and what women are allowed to say and how they're allowed to express themselves has changed and, and all sorts of things that are par for the course now would have been deeply vulgar in the 1960s and impossible. I think that Gwen Harwood came from a place, again, as I said, of stability and, you know, her, her hoax didn't backfire on her. It made her dubious locally because she was she used to make jokes she used to sign her correspondence off as Taz housewife because she and she was sending herself up as the mother of four children who was a Tasmanian housewife but um she did have a very solid sense of stability and I think of her own validity of an artist as well whereas Vita's not that person but it speaks to the way women have been treated in society in the 50s and even today in being accepted for their work, being dismissed, not being seen as equal. The interesting image, of course, is Mrs Parrish, who takes up Ikebana, which is basically dried flower arrangements. And there's a sort of uh, image there of why she's doing it, and yet she finds happiness and release in doing that, finds her own mm. path and purpose. But you also raise the question of art, suffering and happiness. Does mm. art bring you happiness? Because it doesn't seem to for Vida. No. And, I mean, I guess it's the difference between making the work, which might bring happiness, 
and having the consequent public outcome of the work, which might not go to plan, and certainly in my own writing career, has not gone to plan. You know, that idea that the hard work is making the artwork actually not. It's promoting and pushing and seeing it through to an outcome, and then it's here and gone so quickly, and that's brutal. So in, not, in lots of ways, Vita is myself, I have to say, but in lots of ways she's not as well. I was really glad that I gave um, Mrs. Parrish her triumph, though, in the book. And, again, that was something that I wasn't even sure I was doing it until I was actually writing it, that she, she triumphs through flowers, this quintessentially female, domestic, dismissed thing. And certainly, you know, a lot of women's content was dismissed as lesser, and yet she finds her way out, her exit strategy and her happiness through flowers. Well, in bringing this interview to a conclusion, I can only hope that the uh, radio interview, which will go out on the airwaves and be available as a podcast, will enable your artistic endeavour to endure a little longer. (laughs) The listener can pick up the book. It is Bad Art Mother by Edwina Preston. And it's a Wakefield Press release. So, Edwina, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thanks very much to you, David. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.